You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to give us eyes to behold you in your glory, to behold the glory of God in the face and person of Jesus. So would you refresh our vision of you, Lord Jesus, this morning by your Spirit, that we would see you in your glory, we would behold your wonder and your majesty, that we would, by your Spirit, our hearts would be aligned with your purposes So we come with open hands, ready to receive from your word, and we pray that the words that leave our mouths and the the thoughts that fill our minds would be directed to you in worship because you alone are worthy of it. Would you help us to continue in worship now through the study of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, good morning and welcome. Um, thanks for your patience uh, with all of this. The giant plastic wall is a new thing for us, so that's fun. Um, but it's good. Uh, if I could peel back the plastic, you could see on the other side there is no nursery over there anymore, um, which is kind of fun. Uh, by, the plastic, just as an FYI, will probably be there next week, but it probably won't the week after that. That's what I was told anyway, so we'll see if that's the case. Um, good morning, River City. It's a pleasure to be with you. Today is the 7th of January, 2024, which means that we are a <clears throat> solid week into all of our New Year's resolutions. So I probably shouldn't ask, but how are we doing already? You don't have to raise your hands. It's okay. It's funny, though, because we, we, we long for fresh starts, right? I think just this is a part of our human nature that we long for like a, a new start, Maybe it's because we screw up so quickly. Maybe it's because we're fickle. Maybe I'm just talking about myself. But I think we do. And so for us, another rotation around the sun is a good opportunity to take a fresh start. New year, new you. That's the mantra, right? Now, over the past couple of weeks, I, I've been kind of fascinated as I've just observed. I'm a people watcher. I'm a people watcher in person, I'm a people watcher. Um, I, I like browse the internet. I don't participate very much in the social media world. But man, it's fun to browse. It's fun to people watch. And I've been fascinated this last week or so getting a picture of what other people value as we enter this new year. Maybe you noticed this too, but social media posts were littered over the last number of weeks with posts for like goals and ambitions and how 2024 is going to be different than 2023. Lots of the usual things, right? Eating healthier, exercising more, spend more time with your family, go on vacation this year finally, these sorts of things that we tend to to see. But actually what was really interesting to me was how many posts I saw where the goal for the new year was essentially just to put distance between you and people that were not as good to you last year. So many of them putting distance between you and people who didn't fill your cup in the last 12 months. 
people who don't see your value, people who are fake. And to some degree, I, I get it, right? I understand there's, a, there's value in healthy boundaries. I, I get that. But it did get me thinking as I was reading back through Luke's gospel in preparation for our time today, in preparation for this spring as we enter back into Luke, Jesus had 12 close friends, 12 of them, hand-chosen disciples. And I thought about how often those disciples' words and actions could be classified as disappointing. For three years, he invested all of his time and energy in these 12 people. And so often, they didn't understand, they didn't believe him when he was talking to them, or as we'll read today, they outright betray him. So I want us to kind of have that as the backdrop as we read our text today. If you need a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be. Uh, Luke 22, uh, you can follow along. Some folks from our strike team will be coming around. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and, um, <clears throat> and they can get you one so you can follow along. Luke chapter 22. Now what's interesting is Luke 22 kind of marks the beginning of the end of Luke's gospel. From this point forward, through the book of Luke, we'll kind of walk through, essentially, the last week of Jesus' life over these next number of weeks for us. And then at the end of our time, probably into May, we're going to, uh, Lord willing, just peek into the first few chapters of the book of Acts, also written by Luke, to see what happens next. But for today, we're just going to look at six verses. Luke 22, verses 1 through 6. We'll read it together, and then we'll, we'll dive in. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This is God's word for us this morning. Now for the past four years, we've started the new year looking at a section of Luke's gospel. And so today marks the fifth and Lord willing final, for now, section of Luke that we'll tackle. The idea is to finish Luke this spring uh, and, and get through, through the end of it. And the, the title, the big idea for, for every part of this multi-year series from Luke comes from Luke chapter 19, which we looked at last spring, where Jesus says straight up, the Son of Man came, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission, his stated aim. That's why he came, to seek out and to save those who were lost. And if you follow through Luke's gospel, you'll see over and over again, many people receive Jesus with joy. As he travels from place to place, the crowds just continue to grow. And along with those who love Jesus and receive him, there are some who despise him and hate him and, and work really hard to try to shut him up and to stop him from doing all that he was doing. And that brings us to Luke 22 
where now a plot has begun to finally get to Jesus. To this point, they've been unsuccessful until now where someone on the inside will betray him. Now, when I use that word betrayal, it's an interesting word, isn't it? It's, it's one of those words where I think most of us can kind of feel it. There's a tangibleness to that word and that idea of betrayal, isn't there? I mean, betrayal is a deeply personal sin. It's one thing if someone close to us disappoints us by mistake or, or even by carelessness, but betrayal cuts deep because betrayal is not an accident. Betrayal is very intentional. And that's what we find here in Luke 22, the deep sin of betrayal. And yet, even through this sin of betrayal, God is still accomplishing His purpose through Jesus, which causes us to wrestle when we come to a passage like this or we think of a, of a concept like this of just the deep and, and wretchedness of this kind of sin, how heinous this seems. Maybe we wrestle with this. How do we reconcile spectacular and terrible sins with God's sovereignty? How do we do that? These terrible things, like we'll get to in a second, what Judas has done, and yet God is still sovereign over the cosmos. If there was a title for the sermon today, that would be it. Sin and the sovereignty of God. And that's what I want us to kind of wrestle with. And and here's why it's hard Here's why it's a wrestle for us. Because sin always destroys. That's just what it does. It has no power to build up. It only tears down. I mean, Romans 3 reminds us that sin always pays out death at the end. The wage that sin pays in every instance is death. That's where it goes. So when others sin against us, and maybe you've experienced betrayal even, when others betray us, and when we're the ones who are the betrayers, right? we know this, we've experienced this, it always tears down. All sin and unfaithfulness breaks trust, produces pain, and destroys. And that's what makes this reality so troubling. That's the problem. How do we reconcile spectacular sins and the sovereignty of God? And the big idea for this text, our text this morning, and for this message, is that yes, sin destroys, and because Jesus is faithful, his plans can never fail. I want us to try to wrestle with this and to try to reconcile these realities today. Now, our verses today are are just a, a narrative. They're a description of what's happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, perhaps you noticed Jesus' name isn't even mentioned in our text in these six verses. He's referenced, we'll get to that, but his name doesn't even show up. But even in these six verses, there's some beautiful gospel theology that's wrapped up here that I think we'll, we'll find. And because it's more of a narrative section where it's just describing what's going on, we're going to look at these verses a little bit like a story. So here's how I've broken up the text today. The plot, the plans, and the purposes of God. The plot, the plans, and the purposes of God. Let's look at the first part, the plot. With any good story, a plot has like what's happening and who's involved. <clears throat> so that's what we'll look at first. The what and the who of Luke 22, 1 through 6. 
Luke tells us that the, uh, Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem now in celebration of the Passover. Now, the Passover was celebrated uh, as a remembrance of God's rescuing his people from Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt, Exodus tells us this. And, and, and in fact, the Passover is specifically about the final plague in Egypt before Pharaoh lets the Hebrews go. The final plague was that the angel of death would pass through Egypt and that he would kill every firstborn in every household unless the blood of a lamb was painted around the doorpost. And if the blood was found there around the doorpost, which was an act of faith and trusting God's promise, then the firstborn in that household would be spared. God would pass over that home. Hence, the week-long celebration of Passover. It was a pilgrimage-type holiday-type celebration. And so Jesus and his disciples have pilgrimaged to Jerusalem to celebrate together the Passover, along with many others who had made the trek. Luke tells us in the first few verses of chapter 21 that <clears throat> Jesus has been with large crowds during the day, and then he'd retreat in the evenings out to the hillside, likely back towards Bethany where he had friends with his disciples. This was his pattern now for the last little bit. Ministry amongst the crowds during the day and time with his disciples in the evenings. Now, Jesus loves, it seems, to minister to the crowds. He seems to take joy in healing their sicknesses and preaching the coming kingdom. But we also see this pattern where he pulls his disciples aside. He speaks to them directly and personally. So I don't want us to miss this. There's a unique affection that Jesus has for his disciples. And the reason I bring that up is because part of the plot here is that this deep, personal relationship that Jesus has with these 12 men. I mean, he chose them specifically. He had meals with them. He, he did ministry with them. He washed their feet, including Judas. That's the plot. That's the, the context for what's happening here. And in this, these six verses, we also have a few characters to meet. <clears throat> Here's the who. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Jesus is here. He's not mentioned by name, but he's here. He's the him in verse 2. The him who is going to be betrayed, seeking how, to put, seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. So he's here. But verse 2 actually opens with the chief priests and the scribes. Up to this point, Jesus' main adversaries in his ministry have been the Pharisees. Sometimes the scribes, sometimes the Sadducees, mostly the Pharisees. But now it's kind of like, I'd like to speak to your manager. The, the, the bar has been raised. The chief priests are involved now. These would be the, the, the men of honor and high regard amongst the religious elite. They, they sat on the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They had more power and authority. And Luke tells us that they want Jesus dead. They don't just want him to be quiet anymore. They're trying to kill him. Next, we read uh, a man named Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, Bible scholars are a little split on what exactly the Iscariot stands for. Was it part of his uh, hometown? Uh, some some uh, think that maybe um, he was a little bit of a zealot. 
And so it has to do with that. The reality is we don't know. Uh, What we do know is all throughout the New Testament, when there's a common name, like Jude or Judas, typically there'll be a descriptor to go along with it, all throughout the New Testament. Where like in the book of Jude, where he says, I'm Jude, by the way, the brother of James, so you don't get me confused with some other Jude. There's like 1,500 Marys in the New Testament, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Bethany. So they're descriptors. So at the very least, Judas Iscariot helps us understand who this particular Jude or Judas is. But here's what we do know about this Judas. John's Gospel, John 12, tells us that when that expensive perfume was, that vessel was broken over Jesus' feet to anoint him, Judas, this Judas is the one who complained, you know, that was a waste. We could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. But then John gives us this little narrative that Judas really didn't care about the poor. (laughs) In fact, he was the keeper of the money bag for the disciples. They had a shared purse, if you will, for any of their expenses while they were out doing ministry. And, And we also know from John's gospel that Judas would just help himself to the money from the purse occasionally. So what we do know about this Judas, Judas Iscariot, is that he was a liar and a thief. We know that. And the final player, if you will, the final character in these six verses is Satan himself. Satan is referenced in verse 3. Luke tells us Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Satan is the devil. Newsflash. Once known as Lucifer, an angel full of glory, responsible for worship in the heavenlies, Lucifer rebelled against the Lord God and was cast down from his high position, along with all those who rebelled with him that the Bible speaks of as demons. Satan hates God. Satan hates God's glory, and he hates God's people. And the reason he does is because there is no glory for him and no redemption for him. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, sin enters creation, God curses the serpent, and he says this, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan hates the promised seed of the woman because he knows that the promised seed of the woman is going to kill him and going to crush him. So Satan is actively working against God and actively working against all of God's plans and purposes. That's what we know and who's involved here in these six verses. The plot and the players, the context and the people. It's the first part of this. Now here's the plan that is hatched. That's the second part of the passage I want to look at. The chief priests were seeking, verse 2, how to put Jesus to death. They didn't just want to stop him from teaching. They didn't want to just stop him from healing the sick. They were trying to come up with a plan to kill him. And they needed to do it soon because Jesus' following continued to grow. Luke says they feared the crowds. If you're familiar at all with the life of Jesus, there were many attempts along the way, all through, we read it in Luke, we read it in the other Gospels, where they attempted to seize him or attempted to arrest him or attempted to get close to Jesus. And in almost every instance, mostly because the crowds loved him, Jesus would just slip away from their grasp. He would walk right through the crowds as the chief priests or the Pharisees or whoever was making an attempt to seize him. 
The crowds loved him. So they had no way to get close enough to Jesus to arrest him without angering the crowds. And you, you don't want to turn the mob against you, especially when you fear the mob. We'll come back to verse 3 in just a minute, but look at verse 4. <clears throat> so Judas leaves the other disciples and confers with the chief priests and the officers. Those would be the, the temple guards. And his reason, reason for going to meet them was to formulate a plan of how he, Judas, could betray Jesus. That was the whole purpose of his meeting, is I can help you guys get him. Verses 5 and 6, And they, the chief priests and officers, were glad and agreed to give him money. So Judas consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. I can hand him over to you away from the crowds. And this is where we see this betrayal start to come to life here. And it appears, as, as Luke writes it at least, that it was Judas's idea. <laughs> the chief priest didn't have a way to get to Jesus, but Judas is like, I know how. I'm an inside man. Now what's interesting is we're not really told what Judas's motives are here. Some scholars think that because he was a zealot, that maybe Jesus was just not the military revolutionary that he expected against the Romans, and so he was kind of tired of it. He wanted to change. Some just attribute it just to straight greed. We've already seen this in the life of Judas, so maybe he's just like, there's reward money. I'll take it. And there's a handful of other ideas that scholars have put out there as to Judas's possible motivation, but we don't really know. And in reality, it doesn't really matter exactly what was motivating him. Because what we do know is that Judas's agenda was not Jesus's agenda. That's what we do know. Jesus' agenda was to seek and save the lost, but Judas had little regard for the lost or the poor. He didn't care. Jesus came and healed the sick and gave sight to the blind and called sinners to repentance. He promised forgiveness and life in him. But it appears that from almost the very beginning, Judas had his own plans, his own agenda. And so, Judas sought out partners who would help him advance his agenda rather than partnering with Jesus and the disciples to advance Jesus' agenda. And this is where the narrative part of this text gets kind of personal and uncomfortable for us. Partnership to advance agenda. Judas sought out partners to advance his agenda. In this case, he went to the chief priests who were also maybe tired of Jesus. It doesn't matter if their reasonings or their motivations were the same or if they were different because they had the same ends. Both Judas and the chief priests wanted Jesus out of the way at this point. Maybe it was political, maybe it was financial, maybe it was power. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Judas desired something. And so in the beginning of his relationship with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus was the means to get whatever Judas was after. And then when that was no longer working and Jesus, Jesus was no longer giving Judas what he wanted, he chose another path. In this case, someone to help him pursue whatever those desires were. And this is where some of those New Year's resolutions I talked about come into play. 
Sometimes there are negative people and unhealthy relationships that need boundaries and distance and assistance from trusted counselors and brothers and sisters in Christ. That's great. I'm in on that, full stop. However, often the declarations of cutting off all the people who are negative or quote-unquote toxic or quote-unquote fake is really just an excuse to pull away from people with whom we might disagree on something minor. Or worse, pull away from people who really do care about us and are concerned that we might be pursuing the wrong things or walking a dangerous path. I mean, we don't need that kind of negativity in our lives, right? What's more, if they are brothers and sisters in Christ, it's very likely that they are actually actively being used by the Holy Spirit to help us. to call out the sin that we maybe don't see so that we don't fall further into temptation and sin. It might be possible that God is using the means of people close to me to answer the part of the Lord's Prayer when I pray, uh, deliver me from evil. God might be actually using people in my life to do that. But with this kind of resolution that I'm talking about, We tend to reject people who care about us and accuse them of being harsh or mean or unloving because they just don't affirm or agree with us. And instead, we seek out people who won't push on us. We seek out people who won't ask us hard questions, who won't be the voice of Jesus calling us to repentance and faith, who won't remind us of the gospel. Instead, we'll seek out partners who will affirm our desires, and then we'll get that little temporary payoff. Right? The like, the share, the fist bump, the you go girl. Those nice little temporary payoffs. So the question is, and this is the uncomfortable part, whose agenda are we pursuing? Or to ask it this way, is our agenda in line with God's agenda for our lives? I've used this phrase before, and for whatever reason, I just really can't shake it. So if it sounds redundant, you've like, Jake, you've said that before, I know, just acknowledging this just seems to be particularly fitting in our current reality of our culture. This idea of being Jesus-adjacent or gospel-adjacent. Here's the reality from Luke 22, verses 1 1 through 6. Jesus was Judas' friend, but Jesus was not Judas' Lord. Judas was Jesus-adjacent. He got all the community, all the fellowship with the disciples. He got physical proximity to Jesus and all the miraculous works that Jesus did. He heard the prophetic message of the coming kingdom. And with all of that, surrounded by all of it, he was more interested in pursuing his own agenda and fulfilling his own desires. Whose agenda are we pursuing? And let me just take this one level deeper if you weren't uncomfortable enough. See, Judas hatched this plot here with the chief priests, but he doesn't carry it out yet. That comes later, at the end of Luke 22, when Judas betrays Jesus in the garden. But the reality is, Judas had betrayed Jesus long before, in his heart, long before he knocked on the door of the chief priests. That betrayal had already happened in Judas's heart. 
which is another heart check for us because betrayal, like all other sin, begins here in the heart long before it is put into action with the hands. Let me say that again. Betrayal, like all other sin, begins in the heart long before it is put into action with the hands. Whose agenda are we pursuing? Now, we already talked about Judas's track record when it came to money and that he wasn't truthful. So, so, so what we know about Judas is that sin was already crouching. Sin was already dominating in his heart. That kind of paved the way for this. Sin was already at work in Judas and like a cancer, it was just growing inside, producing more and more death. And if that's true, and if it's true that we'll seek out partnerships to pursue our own agendas, then I think that helps us understand verse 3 better. Look at verse 3, Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Now as a kid, I would read a passage like this and it would terrify me. I'd be af- I was afraid that I would just be sitting there, minding my own business, 12-year-old me playing with my Legos, and Satan would come in and make me do all kinds of horrible things. But that's not how this works. Now, we're not going to do a super deep dive this morning into the demonic and, the, and spiritual warfare today, but because Luke brings it up, we'll talk about it. Maybe you're like me as a kid who looks at a passage like this and it gives you, and here's the technical term, it gives you the heebie-jeebies. It is actually a word you can look up in the dictionary, I found out. Maybe that's you. And you're like, ooh, that creeps me out a bit. It does remind us of the real spiritual battle that is raging, but there are some details here that are important. First, Luke makes it clear that Judas is not being harassed by Satan or just uh, affected from the outside. He enters Judas, is what Luke tells us. Judas is possessed by the prince of darkness himself. And this doesn't happen by accident. This kind of possession is shown in a handful of places in the Bible, but in no cases that I can find are legitimate, spirit-filled followers of Jesus shown to be possessed. They're harassed, yes. Attacked, yes. Troubled, yes. But are not, and I would argue cannot, be possessed in this way by Satan or some other demon because the Holy Spirit already dwells within the true believer of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, here's what Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that that fellowship, there is no fellowship between darkness and light. Paul also writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are all, now speaking of believers in Jesus, we are all now children of light, children of the day. We are no longer children of the night or children of darkness. So I hope when we read a passage like this, we understand that we can have confidence that for everyone who has faith in Jesus, we are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore protected from the possessing power of Satan and his demonic forces. I think that's a decent biblical theology of how that works. That being said, the Apostle Paul also reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is a spiritual one, not a physical one. 
that our, our wrestle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Which is why Paul tells us, if you continue in Ephesians 6, that he gives us this armor, this spiritual defense against the kingdom of darkness and tools to combat the darkness and push it back for the advancement of the kingdom. That's the first thing. That, that Judas is, is possessed by Satan in this instance and that tells us something about Judas, that he was not a, a true follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not his Lord, even though he was his friend. And so Judas is very much open to this kind of spiritual attack and possession. Second, even though we're talking about Satan possessing Judas, Judas is not innocent. Judas can't say, it's not my fault, the devil made me do it. That's actually probably where that phrase comes from, by the way. He can't say that. Now, sometimes we see extreme cases, even in the Scripture, where, where people seem out of control. Luke chapter 8 describes a man who has for, for years possibly been living amongst the tombs of his little town, in the graveyard, essentially, naked, hurting himself, throwing himself into fires, cutting himself. And Jesus arrives in the scene. This man, who's been just tortured by demonic activity, falls down at Jesus' feet and says, why are you here? You're torturing us. And Jesus frees the man of a legion of demons who had been harming him. And this man is set free in that moment and is in his right mind and is restored to his family. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Luke chapter 8. But in most cases, Satan's work and influence is described in far less extreme ways. Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey guys, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed at the hands of the chief priests. And Peter, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, there's the 12, and then there's like three really close ones, and Peter's one of those guys, that close to Jesus. And Peter turns to Jesus and says, I will not let that happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and says this, Get behind me, Satan. Now in that moment, was Peter possessed like Judas here in Luke 22? No, I don't think so at all. What's happening? Look at what Jesus says next, Mark 8, verse 33. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says that to Peter. For you were not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So I, I tell you this because I want to kind of frame it out. The influence of Satan is often in line with the desires of the person being harassed. Satan didn't have to push Peter very hard to tempt him into disbelieving Jesus in the moment. Peter's view of the kingdom was at this point probably just still incomplete. He was still thinking of like revolution. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. You're thinking of worldly things. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. Peter could only see the temporary, and Jesus says, that's satanically influenced thinking if you can't think about it in spiritual terms. So Jesus rebukes what he identifies as this satanic thinking, thinking only of a worldly agenda and ignoring God's agenda. So Jesus needed to draw a line between earthly things and heavenly things, between the will of Satan and the will of God. And that's the point, I think, here of Luke 22. Satan found a willing partner in Judas. Satan didn't have to twist Judas' arm to betray Jesus. 
The sinful darkness of Judas' heart was prime real estate for Satan to set up shop, and Judas was all too willing to give him the space to make that happen. That's the plot. And it leads to the final point from our text today. Where do we see the purposes of God in Judas' betrayal? If this is just a work of Satan, where is God in all of this? Now, the close-up or the near cause of this betrayal, ultimately of Jesus' death, was the wicked heart of Judas and unholy partnerships with both Satan and the chief priests. They're responsible for what happens next. However, Jesus himself prophesied that he would be betrayed. Jesus himself prophesied that he'd be wrongly accused, beaten, and killed. He literally said, the chief priests and the scribes that Judas is meeting with now in Luke 22. So, so that's the, the near view is it's Judas' responsibility. But the far or remote cause, the overarching supernatural view is that God Almighty eternally predestined Judas to carry out this act. And this is what we see, what's called the doctrine of concurrence. It's a $10 word. Concurrence. Here's, here's the way it's described in chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 3, section 1. I'm just going to read it. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things and his power and faith, faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. God is not the author of sin, nor does he have fellowship with any in their sin. And his sovereign decree is always accomplished and never thwarted. They're concurrent together. What's reality, what's funny about this is we see many examples like this all over scripture. Genesis chapter 50. Joseph has brothers who don't like him. They beat him and sell him into slavery and years later, they show up open-handed to Egypt because they, there's a drought and they have no food. And who do they find second in command in Egypt? Their brother Joseph, who they thought was dead. And Joseph says to them, what you did to me, as for you, you meant evil against me. You tried to kill me and then sold me into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about Bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Concurrence. You meant something for evil. God meant that same thing for good. And not just your good or my good, but for the good of many. Exodus chapter 9, we read God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God didn't put a new evil in Pharaoh's heart. Rather, God gave Pharaoh what he already wanted. <laughs> He allowed Pharaoh to act according to what he already desired. He removed his hand. And here we have something similar. 
Judas commits a terrible sin against Jesus. And Judas's chosen, willful act of rebellion and sin was used of God to bring about what was prophesied according to God's will. In fact, I said this already. Jesus himself said this would happen this way. John 13. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe is curse. And we'll find later here in Luke that Judas himself bears that curse as he takes his own life after betraying Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 10, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Sound familiar? They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, that's Rome. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. So Judas, by his own will, makes a deal with the devil, chooses to sin by betraying Jesus to the chief priests so that Jesus might be arrested and delivered to the Romans to be beaten and killed. And in the sovereign providence of God, Satan was participating in his own destruction because Jesus said, this all needs to happen so that I might die and in my death kill sin, that I might rise from death, putting an end to death, and that through this betrayal, I might crush the head of the serpent once and for all. And that's the hope for us in these six verses. Because Jesus is faithful, his plans will never fail. Ever. That's the gospel hope we need. Because every one of us has been betrayed, and every one of us has been the betrayer. And our hope is not in distance or boundaries. Our hope isn't in retribution. Our hope isn't in just like trying to overlook the sin or the hurt. Jesus dealt with our betrayal by dying for sinners. This is the hope, not in ourselves, but that in Christ, our betrayal is dealt with. Therefore, forgiveness is possible. This is how our betrayal is dealt with. It was the will of God to put Christ to death so that we might live. That's the gospel. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The father crushed the son so that you and I might be made sons. 
The Son was cursed so that you and I might be free. The Son died and rose again so that we might die to our sin and be made alive to God forevermore. And if He is faithful, then we can be sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing will happen to us that will keep God from accomplishing His will in our lives and in the world. No matter how hard it might be for us to trust, maybe because of the betrayal that we've endured, Jesus has proven His faithfulness, His love for us, and that in all our own broken trust, we are not without hope. Because Jesus is faithful, we can trust Him. He will always keep His own and his plans and promises never fail. Would you pray with me? Father, as Devin prayed when we started, you are indeed faithful even when we are faithless. We confess first that that we're the betrayer. (laughs) We're the one in need of forgiveness. We thank you that you offer true and full forgiveness in Christ. Thank you in your sovereignty. You are orchestrating all things according to the counsel of your will. And so we humbly ask that you would conform us to your will now. That we would, by your Spirit, willfully bow the knee to your will and your work now because we know that every knee will bow. Would we respond in faith by the Spirit and humbly surrender to you now? Would you remind us of the cost of purchasing our freedom? the beauty and the agony of your death, Lord Jesus, as we come to the communion table, that would see afresh your faithfulness and would respond in worship. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.